If you're running something as simple as a Facebook ad, instead of running a Facebook ad that just pushes an offer, it's better to take somebody to an article that tells you why the company was started or tells you about a customer experience. Or maybe it's even an influencer or a creator talking about how this product impacted their life and eventually led them to want to make this video. It's not just an ad. It could be in a billboard, it could be in TV, but it's also things like when you open your box for the first time and something pops out, how do you do things that are pleasant and enjoyable for the end consumer, but at the same time have the capabilities of getting that reorder or getting that first purchase in the first place? This podcast is sponsored by Klaviyo, the email and text marketing platform that puts D2C brands in control. If you're the leader of a D2C brand, you need a platform that hustles as hard as you do. Klaviyo unlocks the power of your e-commerce data so you can personalize and automate messages that keep customers coming back. D2C brands communicate with Klaviyo. Start for free at klaviyo.com DTC. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot DTC. Hello and welcome to the D2C Podcast. I'm Eric Dick and today we have one of the legends of the D2C space, Nick Sharma. Now besides being the D2C guy on Twitter, Nick is an investor, advisor and operator to some of the fastest growing brands in CPG. Welcome to the program, Nick. It is great to be having a meeting of the minds with you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is a uh, it's a long time coming. I think I've been following you on Twitter for a while, and uh, and I just I love what you're doing in the space. I think there's a lot of ways we can collaborate. So let's start with this concept of performance branding. But before that, I want to go one step higher and talk about what is the state of the D 2 C brand in 2021. I know there was a period of of things that were, were called blands, where you just had you know the right kind of font and the right kind of pastel and. Uh, and you you really could nail a brand, but where are we at with 2021 and your concept of branding? Yeah, so I mean, I think um, I think there was a few different ways waves. I think the first wave was like, you know, if you sold online and you had some kind of online commerce component. Thinking back to like native deodorant movement, Gymshark, those types of days, um, you could do pretty well, and even like at Hint. I would say, you know, our commerce platform was pretty terrible, but we sold a good product and it was online. So the real benefit was like, it gets delivered to your door. It was all about convenience at first. And on the flip side, you know, on the brand side there, it was all about, you know, how can you get eyeballs? Because this concept of like buying from brands wasn't necessarily super new, but it was fairly new to most people um, and fairly novel to have like good site experiences. And so things like conversion rate was high, you know, the cost of advertising was pretty cheap. The cost of generating clicks was pretty cheap. And then we went into this like DTC 2.0, which is where everybody realized, oh, I can actually do this. And, you know, that's when every factory got hit up with, you know, hey, can you make me this set of products and I'm going to slap a label on it. We're going to put some fonts and branding on it. We're going to try to sell it and do the same thing that the 1.0 did. The problem is that they, they kind of evolved to this this mindset of, okay, we can slap a label on something and probably sell it, but they didn't really innovate anything on the marketing side. So everything they did marketing-wise was still focused on the same way they were doing it in 1.0, which led to you know, everybody just complaining about the cost of advertising and you know, like really lame advertising, you know, really bad user experiences, just not polished enough. And, and that had its own wave of companies that died out there. And then I think 3.0, which is maybe where I'd say where we're at now, is like very much focused on 
uh, function and relevance. So like, does this brand even have a purpose to exist? Is it just the 17th personal care brand? Or like, does it really have a reason to exist? Is there some reason they exist, whether it's a moat they have in their product or, you know, something else, maybe community driven? They're disruptive in the space, perhaps, too. Like they're innovating on an idea whose time has come kind of thing is something I see time and time again. Exactly. And and it's all, you know, it all kind of goes down to like answering the question of like, why does this exist? And does it have a real reason to exist other than, you know, it's an arbitrage opportunity? And then I think the other thing worth noting, too, is like, I feel like we're kind of ending this era of e-commerce just being this arbitrage opportunity with you know the cost of advertising not necessarily maybe rising but probably more like normalizing to where it should have been um, now that the demand is there and so i think we're going to start to see like we're either going to see a lot of brands now just slowly start to you know get smaller and smaller and and die or we're going to see brands just really have a glow up with their brand side and really build a community and build something where people you know, without seeing an ad are excited to go back and repurchase something or do something with a brand. And so how do you do that? Easy question, right? How, like, and I think this is probably what your whole practice is kind of based on at this point, whether you're advising or operating or investing, I I bet this is really what you're focused on. Yeah. I mean, I I don't think there's necessarily like a, a one shot answer. In my opinion, it's about getting like 2% better in all aspects of the business every day. So for example, if you're getting better in your shipping, you're getting better in your packaging, you know, maybe that leads to a better unboxing experience. That leads to, you know, a little bit better word of mouth. If you're getting better in the way that you're advertising, you're telling more of a story rather than just telling people to buy something and get an offer, you know, you're, you're still creating, you're building that brand equity. And it's just, it's basically, building brand happens very slow. It's not something that you can, you know, go hire a team or go hire an agency and something just magically happens overnight. It's something that takes a lot of time and it's really hard to do, but the ones that end up doing it, um, you know, they, they're the brands that we're still wearing today, 25 years later, um, and the ones that are still relevant and the ones we still talk about today. But the ones that were maybe all in on just, you know, performance at one point, you know, those aren't necessarily the brands that we're still talking about or, or excited to even, you know, get behind or wear or taste or consume. So when you say performance branding, what what do you mean by that? Because this is something that really resonates. We talk all the time on the podcast about performance creative, uh, you know, the velocity you need to have, the the iterative capability, all, all of that. But what do you mean uh, when you talk about it branding, like performance branding over time? How does that work? So in my mind, um, performance branding is the concept of building brand equity on the back of your working performance media dollars. So for example, if you're running, you know, something as simple as a Facebook ad, right? Instead of running a Facebook ad that just pushes an offer, you know, it's better to take somebody to an article maybe that tells you why the company was started or tells you about a customer experience or, or maybe it's even an influencer or a creator, you know, talking about how this product impacted their life and, you know, eventually led them to want to make this video. It's basically how do you, you know, across every touch point, and I think it's not just in ads, it's, it could be in a billboard, it could be a TV, it could be ads, but it's also things like, you know, when you open your box for the first time and something pops out, right? Whether it's like a, a nice welcome note with a, a batch QR code at the bottom so that you can easily reorder, right? It's the concept of like, how do you do things that are pleasant and enjoyable for the end consumer, but at the same time have the capabilities of, you know, whether it's getting that reorder or getting that first purchase in the first place. 
And so it's less, when I hear like performance branding, I think about sort of, you know, testing the aspects or the personality of the brand that's going to resonate most with customers and honing down towards that. Is that part of it as well? Absolutely. I think, um, you know, one of the greatest gifts that Mark Zuckerberg has given us is this engine where we can basically decide, okay, if this is who we think our customer is, you know, let's say it's like male and female, you know, 25 to 44, right? Who live in X, Y, and Z places. You can set this as your parameter and then think, okay, I'm drinking smart water here. So like, what are the 27 reasons somebody's going to drink smart water? And answer that question on a piece of paper and then literally take that piece of paper with all those reasons and just start testing them, whether it's by headlines, you know, throwing an overlay on an image and you test it by creating some kind of feedback loop, which drives towards a conversion event which is essentially, you know, it could be something like a purchase that could be the conversion that then gives the feedback of, okay, this is the signal that this worked. Or it could be something even higher level, like, you know, a landing page where you just put your email in and submit your email as a lead. Um, But as long as you build some kind of conversion event, you're able to then test against it and really figure out, okay, what is the messaging that really resonates? And what is the the type of messaging or copy or tone of voice that's going to get that person over the fence? And this is the core of performance marketing, right? Which is the, what is really taking over all channels of, of you know, marketing boardrooms are all now kind of starting to think more about this way of thinking. I, I imagine you've been evangelizing it for a while. Are you finding that it's that it's like finding, uh, you know, ears a lot easier these days? Yeah, I mean, it, um, you know, I remember in like 2017 when I would talk about it, um, the performance side of people were like, yeah, you're totally right. And the brand side of people were like, you're so dumb. Like you have no idea. You have no idea how advertising in big companies works, which was true at the time because I had only had startup experience. But you know, now we're, we work with Fortune 50 companies and this is all they care about up to their CMO level. You know, like it's usually their CMOs or their chief digital officers are reaching out to us saying like, you know, either we saw this concept of performance branding or, you know, can you come in and talk to us about this? Like we were getting pressure from our board that we really need to shift the way that we advertise. A lot of brands too, not a lot, but like, you know, top 250 brands in the world maybe. The way that most of them do marketing is basically let's run something for the next six months and then we spend the subsequent six months trying to figure out like what impact it had. And then after 12 months, you basically get a report. Okay, this campaign that you ran with this much spend drove like this kind of lift or this sell through or whatever it is. Throwing darts with blindfolds kind of a little yeah, bit. Yeah, exactly. Throwing darts. And, and the other thing too is like the way that they do it is very blanket. So like Corona, for example, would take one TV ad and run that nationally. But when you think about uh, what we were just talking about with SmartWater, you know, running 27 different ways, you're going to figure out that different zip codes react differently or, or even down to like, you know, or even broadly, like different cities or different states react to things differently because of the way that their culture is. And so this concept of just taking one creative or, or one campaign and blanketing, you know, as many impressions as you can um, is just, it just doesn't work as well anymore. 
It's such an interesting, I was just talking on, on a podcast yesterday and we were talking about just the, the stream of innovation you need to have as a D2C founder, as a, as a business owner in this space. And I think about it versus the way that big corporations sort of, the big CPG, top 10, top 20 CPG brands, the way they sort of formed. And it's like by forming the supply chain lines of, of the in, of entire retail infrastructure, it's like it sort of enabled this kind of, uh, you know, spray and pray style advertising because they knew that they had their channels locked in, in in a lot of these cases. I'm, I'm simplifying it too much probably, but whereas now it has to be this ongoing refining, constantly refining relationship you're building and, and, and maintaining with, with your customers. Yeah, hundred percent. And, and you know, the customers too, in, in a lot of the brands that we touch, the customers is where we look when it comes to innovation on where are we, you know, where are we pushing marketing dollars or where, where, you know, if it's a, a physical product sold in stores, like the customers online is what's helping the offline teams figure out where they need to go harder. And then it also helps us really understand in other brands, like the product roadmap, right? What is it that people are asking for and how do we then create the solve for what they already trust us and come to us for? And then secondly, in the marketing too, you know, what are the things that everybody has a question about? Or, you know, if you look at customer service for most D2C brands, I'd say 95% of the inquiries are about the same, you know, five to 10 things. And so being able to, to take those insights, whether it's from ad comments or, you know, social media comments, uh, DMs, uh, customer service inquiries, and then figure out how to put that back into the brand. One, it works, but two, it's just another way to help build that brand up front. We have a section here called guest opinions from the pre-interview you did with Thomas here. And I just want to ask about this opinion because it seems like a really great idea. The easiest thing you can do as a brand is drop your customer acquisition costs by 30 to 40%. Seems like a no brainer. Why don't, why doesn't everyone do it? Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, it's a good question. I mean, we, <laughs> I've tried to make it so easy for everybody to do exactly what we do when we get paid to come into companies, right? Like one of the main things is, is a lot of times companies are obviously focused on digital customer acquisition. And one of the first things we'll always do is, okay, you know, understand what is the creative, like from a, a perspective of, are they running good video? Is it engaging? Does it hook you? Does it hit a punchline that, that really hits home? And then, you know, when you click that ad, like, where is it going? Is it going to the homepage? Is it going to a product page? Is it going to a landing page? Is that page optimized? Does it tell a story? By the time you get to the bottom, do you have any questions? You know, and so in my opinion, the, the best thing any brand can do is just build a very simple landing page. And, you know, a super simple one you could see is like if you go to orgain.com slash welcome. Um, and if you want to get even more complicated, you can go to like poopery.com slash BYOB. And those are two different examples that we created where you kind of understand what it is, how it's going to help you and how do you get it. But at the same time, there's different points of relevance for a customer who's probably going through there to understand, oh, you know, I know this. So comparing this to this, this makes sense. Um, we put out a landing page guide as well. Breaks down pretty much everything. I think if you just Google Sharma Brands landing page guide, it comes up. And next week, we're actually launching our literally the exact template that we use that, you know, obviously gets modified here and there. But we're literally launching a template with, um, with Builder. So anybody on Shopify will be able to add a template, our landing page template to their store in basically five minutes and just quickly customize, drop new photos and start using it. 
we're big advocates of the of the pre-sale page, the landing page. Yeah. Um, and it's it, it fits right in with the pro- it just gives you that longer runway to make the connection, to to develop your brand, to you know develop all that stuff. Absolutely. And it just improves sales. It's kind of counterintuitive sometimes to put another page in front of where you want to send yeah. them. Yeah. But it well, works. here's the thing, right? Most people drive to like their homepage or a collections page, which those I think are wasted clicks. Because um, every click you add potentially decreases your conversion rate because you're giving another chance for somebody to drop off or you know if their internet's slow and it's not loading fast enough, like they're going to leave. But when you go to a pre-sale page or a landing page and you can get everything answered, you're almost, it's, it's like you're not trying to get them to buy, you're almost just convincing them to, for it to be their idea to come buy your product. I think uh, I, I definitely preach that. Um, I'm wondering, what are your observations about the uh, post iOS 14 world? Are you noticing? Have you had to shift any of your operations? Your, your thinking is. I'm hearing you talk. You sound like an like an ad guy from the 60s. You know, like doesn't have a story, doesn't answer the question. You know, like just the simple, straightforward stuff that you need to think about instead of all the bells and whistles quite often. But so I'm wondering, what is your mindset on the changes that we're experiencing in iOS 14? Yeah. So um, in most things we're seeing. Um, a lot of brands have definitely pulled back their media spend a good amount. Um, at the same time, though, the brands with with really good brand equity and also just a phenomenal product are a lot and really good product market fit from the beginning, right? They're not they they were spending on Facebook to extend the reach and extend the amount of eyeballs they could get into a machine into an acquisition machine that was already working because they had a good product market fit. Those brands not really affected at all. Their MER, you know, media efficiency ratio, which is basically your um, overall media spend, overall revenue. It's like ROAS on a larger scale. Pretty much stayed the same, right? They probably had a lot of reporting issues like on platform, but when you zoom out and look at the overall efficiency, that actually didn't really change. On the other hand, the brands that, you know, back to that like DTC 2.0, the ones that um, we're really spending to try and prove product market fit or spending to try to become relevant in the first place without like really building a brand or a foundation that people were already into. Those are the ones that got hit really hard because their, their sole customer acquisition channel was usually Facebook and Instagram ads. And the way the platform works is basically it takes the inputs of what happened with the last dollar to dictate where it's spending the next dollar. So if you have a brand that has its own you know, like take Caraway for example, a brand that has, it's, it's a great product, it's got incredible reviews, it's got a ton of press, they've got great affiliate built out, they've got great SEO, good content, good social strategy. Like they, they were probably not as affected as maybe, you know, the 28th men's skincare brand, which didn't really have a purpose or really a brand built, but they, you know, maybe they found efficiencies in their Facebook ads because they were serving the right ads, the right time, the right messaging. But that pixel or, or that account is not able to get the same level of efficiency uh, without having the feedback coming in constantly because it doesn't really know who to go after. And so you need your product to be kind of like a heat-seeking missile out there, like with its own purpose, with yeah. its own, you know, solve, it's got to solve problems. It's got yeah, to be able to live on its own. Yeah. Exactly. And it doesn't necessarily mean like if you stopped advertising today, you know, people should, there should still be a ton of customers. I don't know that that's true. I don't know that even some of the biggest brands in the world would agree, but it should be something where, you know, if you don't have good product market fit, then you probably don't deserve to like live. 
<laughs> that's yeah. yeah, that's I'm wondering like I was like there's anyone in the audience listening who's just like, "Oh man, I don't have product market fit." Like what yeah. is there to do? There's you can you can if you're in your space, you can just look at other needs in your space, but it's kind of back to the drawing board if you don't have those essential things in this environment maybe, eh? Yeah, and it's like, you know, it's it's also understanding again, like is there a true purpose for this thing to exist? This morning um, me and and a couple of people on the Sharma Brands team, we were just like, you know, reading some newsletters here and there. And we came across this brand that sells like toilet plunger, you know, $40 toilet plunger or like screwdrivers and pliers for 50 bucks each. And we're just like, this is never going to win, you know, because like you, you can't convince the average person to go spend $50 on pliers or $40 on a toilet plunger. Yeah. And those are the ones that are not going to be able to survive something like this iOS 14, you know, cookie apocalypse. But the ones on the other hand that really do serve a function and they have great product and they have a foundation, they're going to be totally okay. There's no fewer ad impressions, you know, yeah. the, and so as long as, as long as you can rep yourself out there the right way. Need high quality, fully licensed UGC? With MiniSocial, you can produce beautiful, authentic, and fully licensed user-generated content featuring your products with micro-influencer creators. D2C brands like Native, Olipop, Hydrant, and others love working with MiniSocial as a way to populate their organic social acquisition channels, website, and beyond, while also competing dollar for dollar with traditional influencer activations on Instagram and TikTok. Get started on a campaign at minisocial.com today. I saw another uh, tweet here that I thought was really interesting. And I, you know, we're huge fans of the retail and e-commerce enablement tech section. They're obviously, you know, big, big partners of the newsletter uh, and the podcast. I know with you and with your info brand as well. I wanted to know what you meant by saying the companies that let incredible brands launch, grow and become your favorite company are the next billion dollar brands. Can you shout out a few of those like up and coming billion dollar brands you think? Yeah, I mean, um, there's definitely a handful. I mean, companies like, you know, Yachtpo and Pixley have definitely proven it already. But then I think there's a handful of companies on the rise right now, whether it's um, Co-op Commerce or Settle or Wayflyer or Okendo or, um, you know, Motion. Like there's a lot of apps out there and, and a lot of software that's not necessarily just like Shopify specific software either, but very much commerce specific in the sense that they, you know, like Co-op Commerce, for example, has created basically an entire network of brands and customers that they can now leverage to drive incremental acquisition. Or, you know, Smarter has taken a whole new approach to the way subscription is done from the development standpoint and from the brand standpoint, you know, giving them access to better developer tools and better analytics and better user experience. Companies like Settle have basically figured out how to create their own debt facility where they can lend to brands financing POs or on the flip side too, even with like agencies and service providers collect invoices, you know, 60 to 90 days early. And obviously they, you know, when I, when I just think about like where, where, where do all the costs go, in most brands, like most of the money goes towards marketing, right? But these guys, on the other hand, they, they don't necessarily focus much on marketing. They really focus a lot on product. And what's interesting too about just this whole you know, even like DTC, Twitter, for example, or just this community that's been built um, thanks to, you know, the ability of, of social networks is like a lot of these apps and a lot of these software companies, when they're good for one or, or a handful, they spread like wildfire. So the combination of all those things 
Um, and just the fact that you know e-commerce is only getting easier. There's only going to be more and more brands launched every day, whether it's from the average person who realizes that they have a really good idea or a problem that they solved, or even just creators who have, you know, I mean, think about how many TikTokers now have 100,000 followers, right? Um, there's so many different ways that commerce is going to blow up. And I think it's, it's becoming less reliant on media and acquisition tools and more reliant on software so that when somebody does land on your site or somebody does transact with you, you basically, you know, you use these tools to give yourself the best at bat. We had Repeat as a sponsor this past week, and their their call to action on our newsletter was, hey, you can just go, it's, it's sort of like a headless commerce checkout for, for repurchasing that you can do from email or SMS, and, and they just basically allowed us to give all of our readers the opportunity to go through all these different fun checkouts, like that are actually, like they were actually hosting on their site checkouts for all these D2C brands. It was just such an innovative experience, and it's like when I see things like that, and you realize like as creators, you know, generate these audiences and, and have these headless stores that kind of follow them around around essentially like there's there's a real opportunity for growth and I think you're, you outlined it well there I wanted to ask uh, I see here you worked a little bit at Vayner Media what was that like um, it was a pretty fascinating experience um, it was really cool to see you know the the 17 companies that Gary runs at the same time um, and also just the environment within Vayner you know they're insanely focused on getting a lot of these large Fortune 100 brands really up to speed from on the digital side and even on the non-digital side. Yeah, I mean, overall, it was, it was a real fascinating experience. I think they're, they're definitely years ahead of um, a lot of other agencies, and I would say they're probably also super underrated for, for the capabilities that they have. Amazing and great learning for you, who's taking the, this path of a, of sort of the name consultancy, right? Which is different, a little bit different than an agency. What's that been like? Like putting yourself out there at this level and, and building your business kind of around your consultancy persona. Yeah. So initially, um, that was not the plan. A friend of mine, Dylan Drews, actually, you know, jokingly would always always just call me Sharma Media, or, or he would just call me Sharma Brands, and so. You know, then I was just like, all right, well, I'll just take that. <laughs> it's easy enough. I don't have to think of another name. But it's been cool in the sense that, um, you know, I think of it similar to like, this is going to sound cringe, but similar to like an influencer with their own brand. So like Kim Kardashian and Skims or Simon Huck and Judy or, of course, now I can't think of other brands like Mr. Beast and, and, and Beast Burger. But um, it, in the sense that like it, it brings a face and a personality with it. So it's like, you'll, you'll never feel like you're just talking to an agency or, you know, even I notice it in the way that people even write into us when they want to work with us. It's never like, you know, Hey, we're looking for your services. Please let us know like when we can set up a time to chat. It's always leading with like something that is personality driven or something that's just more fun and like really, you know, feels more humanistic, I guess. But yeah, it's been great. I mean, um, you know, everybody expects me to be on everything, which kind of sucks. But <laughs> <laughs> at the same time, you got to take on you know, everything. Yeah, at the same time, it's it's been really cool to also just kind of learn this concept of creating a flywheel between like a personal brand and a consultancy, and then you know now next and your week content I brand, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then next week I launch a rolling fund, and so that's going to become a part of this flywheel as well. So I think more than anything, it was really cool to understand and probably just like learn this whole process. 
And the content brand is is the real like yeah, coming. You know, this is what we're doing with D 2 C and and Pilot House. Like the the content piece of it has got like how much is that fueling the rest of your business in terms of the contacts you're making and the and things like that. Yeah, so it's really funny. It's it's very um, indirect, I would say, but it it does help a lot. So for example, um, all of our clients either come. So if they're not a Fortune 100, they usually come as an intro from a banker who's looking to flip a company within the next two years, or they come from investors who are either fueling, you know, um, they, maybe they fueled the seed round or they're fueling the A or B round. And, and then usually they'll, they'll connect their companies with us. And at that point, they've already kind of understood, okay, there's, there's a good understanding that we're probably going to hire Sharma Brands. Um, the Fortune 100 companies actually almost exclusively come from people who are already reading my newsletter. And so that's usually like, you know, the CMO of, of a large cosmetics brand reaches out and says, you know, we want to, we, let's just chat. We just want to learn about this concept because, you know, our board has been telling us we need to move towards this. And, you know, every time we Google this, like your name comes up. So we just want to chat. But what it, what it has done for the other companies, which is probably more relevant to everybody else, is like... When people see content and that too, like good, you know, they see something good that they can relate to and, and maybe even take and, and make use out of, it just, it sticks in their mind. And then when they think, okay, how do we do this? Then, then it comes back to us. Um, or, you know, for example, like I got to meet Brian Sugar, the, the guy who founded Pop Sugar and is now the president of Group 9 Media Group, which is, I think, a, a billion dollar company. And the only reason was because he enjoyed reading my tweets, right? And then I got to meet with him and he's probably sent us three or four brands he's invested in personally that, you know, he's like, well, I know if, if Sharma Brands team takes care of it, like I'm good with my investment. And so um, it, it's very indirect. It's like the content gets the people and then the people either instantly or, you know, maybe a year later will say, hey, you know, we're thinking about this and, and you know, saw that you, you know something about this. It's not that different from how you were describing this new model of advertising a little bit where you sort of are leading with quality and you're kind of keeping people around with content so that when you're not trying to foster the need as much as just like let them know that you're the best option when it when they're ready. Yeah, and that's the entire thesis behind this rolling fund is basically that before people are even looking for an, an investment in their company, they've, you know, 12 to 18 months prior to the they even think they're going to go out and raise They've just been consuming things that I've written or maybe things that I've spoken about or a YouTube video or this podcast. And then when they think, okay, now it's time for us to raise, then, you know, I'm going to get the first email. Or maybe like in, in the case of House, which is an aperitif, you know, Helena and I were DMing for like a year before the brand was ever even announced. And so in my opinion, having some kind of audience or in whatever space you're in, whether you repair airplane engines for Southwest or you run a brand or you run an agency or you're a content creator, like having an audience really helps you uh, not only establish credibility, but also it's just it just helps you skip the line. It's like being the hot chick going to the club. You go straight to the bouncer and you walk right in. There's no line. You don't pay for a ticket. You know, it's just like it, it just makes life a lot easier. I'm surprised more people don't do it. Whenever I think about it, it's never... I'm never forcing content. Like for example, the last week and a half, I've just been so busy with work. I probably haven't put out a, a good tweet in like, you know, 10, 15 days, but I'm not sitting there forcing myself. Okay. I got to put something out. I take that whole approach of the document don't create. And so 
It's like, okay, something really cool happened. I'm going to tweet about it. I'm going to talk about it. You know, if I, if I, um, say that again, the document document, don't create, it's a Gary V saying document. Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. And, um, and, and so, you know, even with the newsletter, I just look back at my calendar from the past week and I just look through the meetings and I think, okay, what was the most common problem? And then I take that problem, I write the answer and I just ship it out to 15,000 people. It, the, the way that we view it is just sort of like we're, you know, we're having a part, we're throwing the party. We want to, we want to be the place where, where we're throwing the party. And then we, we talk about pilot house and things like that, but really it's just like, they're the host of the party on the newsletter. Right. And people will want to meet the host. Exactly. So it's that idea of skipping the line, right? Like, and, and, and by the time people kind of come in, they're like, yeah, we want to work with you guys. We've seen how you work. We've seen how you operate. We see how you think about this and that. And yeah. And I think every brand too should have something like that. Like, you know, Brightland should have a newsletter with recipes every week curated by a chef or created by a chef. And, you know, House could have a newsletter or they could have a weekly cocktail. You know, this is how you make a cocktail. It's going to impress your friends on Friday night. Like there's definitely so many opportunities to create really good content that I think people get attracted to immediately just because the, the flip side of it is these large media companies who create content for the purpose of revenue. And it's just not that great. But when you have brands creating it, they're, they create content on a completely different business model. It's not, oh, we got to get page views and clicks because it's going to generate ad revenue, which pays our bills. It's just, you know, we have profits and let's invest it into creating things that are really, really good and really authentic. I wanted to ask, I know you've mentioned a few other brands. I know you're really knee deep in the CPG and D2C space, but what are a couple brands that you'd want to shout out that you think are just absolutely crushing in the, in the D2C space right now? Um... I think one that's absolutely crushing, or maybe two in the same space um, that don't get a, a ton of attention um, by the community is probably, one is probably Whoop, and the second one is Eight Sleep. You know, they're kind of pioneering this, um, this category of health tech or, or uh, like personal care tech, you could say. Um, really focusing on combining like good product and good experience with this side of science and data and quantitative understandings to basically help you become a better person. So I think that's one category that's that's really exciting. In a new category, and you know what I mean? In a category that we've, we've all had, but it's just sort of emerging as well. I think that's a big part of that formula, mm -hmm. right? As this, they're, they're sort of category creating in that in that space. Exactly. Um, you know, Judy is, is one kind of like that where it was almost a category creator. And, um, and there's obviously a lot of advantages to being the category creator. Um, another one that I'm really excited about is just the space of telemedicine, but not like the older telemedicine brands, like the new ones that have really built a really strong foundation as large as the pill club, but as small as like Maximus tribe, which just recently I think got into beta, you know, these brands are also creating really sophisticated and unique approaches to Things that, you know, for a long time have never been able to get, you, you, you couldn't get outside of going to the doctor. Okay, so here's a question. So say uh, we were just to give you a $50,000 grant to be used for marketing for either one of your brands, one of your brands in your portfolio. Where are you putting that $50,000 to see sort of the biggest return in the next, say, six months? Months, say. I would say it would be a combination. Uh, so I'm, I'm like a scrappy guy at heart because, you know, I'm Indian. My parents are immigrants. Like scrappy as it gets. So I would, I would probably hustle on the side of like influencers and creators, especially probably with TikTok. Yeah. How bullish are you on TikTok? So bullish. I mean, yeah. um, you know, without even counting the ads platform, which I think is going to turn into a beast. 
Um, if you, like with every brand that, that we've done this with, if we send out product to even just 50 creators, you know, between uh, 50 to 250,000 followers, and you put out, you know, they basically put out 50 pieces of content, let's say, um, 10 to 15 are just bound to get a million views. It's like, it's just a numbers game. And so, so I would definitely do that. And then I would probably invest into uh, newsletters a little bit and then probably just some general Facebook, Instagram retargeting. I love this. We had, we, we had some conversations with Paved. We're doing some of our ad slots through Paved and they're an ad network that allows you to buy newsletter slots. I think that's really interesting, like D to C, uh, B to C uh, through newsletters as well. That's got like, you know, the hustle's got, you know, a million readers or whatever, right? Like, have you had some some wins on, on newsletters with, with CPG brands? Yeah, I would say, you know, it, it very much depends also on the quality of the subscriber, right? So like when you think about, like I was probably one of the first advertisers in both the hustle and morning brew, early and even the skim, early days of these newsletters, like just the best possible return. And then you've probably kind of noticed like over, over time, uh, the larger newsletters shift more toward B2B sponsors because, you know, for example, with, if you're a, a CPG company and your AOV is 50 bucks, you know, uh, you're not going to get that good of a return. But then if you're in Morning Brew and you're a B2B company and one, you know, one client equals a $50,000 contract, you're extremely happy with the results you get there. Yeah. Um, but I think same way with smaller newsletters too, you know. Um, I think the group of smaller newsletters and substacks is kind of the new like nano influencer on Instagram. Very effective, highly engaged readers. Um, and we're talking newsletters with like, you know, 60 or 50 to 60% open rates and, and 15 to 25% click through rates. Unreal. That's an excellent knowledge bomb to leave people with. And you mentioned Scrappy. You know, I, I come from an affiliate background where Scrappy was the name of the games, click arbitrage, you know. Yeah. What, do, you, do you have a, a favorite Scrappy marketing story that you can recall? Yeah. So we had a, um, a, a cleaning brand last year that we worked with, a home cleaning brand. It was a very, very premium brand and, um, you know, very elevated branding, photography, et cetera. The product was all glass. It was a beautiful product. The problem was that they, they were marketing it almost like a, a luxury item. And obviously, when you look at the, you know, the Louis Vuittons or the Ramoas of the world, you know, they're not necessarily driving the landing pages. They're not doing anything fancy because like, they've spent 100 years building their brand. But this was a brand new company. And so you know, they basically put $2 million in at this point between R&D, brand identity, you know, running media, and they were at a point where they were going to say, okay, it's time to just scrap this. And, um, and so we were already working with them. So we just said, hey, you know, we went to the president and said, give us some cover from the brand team. Like, give us two weeks. Ship us the product. Or no, this happened after we got the product because we actually used the product ourselves and thought, holy cow, this, this product is phenomenal. And, um, and, and that's when our, our wheel started thinking like how – how is this being marketed so bad when the product quality and, and, the, and the product itself is just so amazing? And so we, we asked for cover from the brand team and basically, you know, the three employees that I had at the time, we all filmed UGC ourselves with our iPhones. EGC, yeah. employee, generated, employee content. generated content. We talk about it all the time. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, and we filmed it and it was all natural because uh, the products were just so good. All of us loved the product. And um, we cut it up with a video editor, you know, added basic subtitles, nothing fancy. 
We started running it with an ad to a, a beautiful landing page as well that was very conversion focused, not just like a, a homepage with no real info. And all of a sudden, their acquisition costs went from you know like 150 down to basically 30. They went from doing like 20 new customers a day to maybe 150 customers a day. And that was just kind of the starting point and then it just took off from there. Um, but it ended up saving the brand. It was extremely scrappy. You know, the, all the videos were created on probably with the editor, like a $300 budget. Yeah. And, um, and it was all just about like, okay, let's really understand why do we like this product? And so we wrote down why we like the product and then we went through the actual reviews of the product and we just made a tally. Okay, this person mentioned scent, this person mentions non-toxic. You know, we made a, a tally of, of like the top five things. And then when we looked at it, we just said, okay, we're going to talk about these five points ranking from, you know, the most tallies to the least tallies. And, um, and that's how we created our EGC ads. That is an unreal story. I, we, I was just talking about this in an ad leaks post I was making today about the ease that you can still knock off these, these kind of TikTok creatives and, and what really works. You know, we call them scrappy, but it's also they're authentic and they come across super authentic. And the reason they work is because when you're scrolling through your feed, right, especially on, um, on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, uh, Pinterest and Snapchat, these are all feeds that you curate yourself, right? You're going there and you're looking to be entertained. Yep. Uh, on TikTok, for example, you, they entertain you, right? You're not curating your feed. I mean, you could with the, the, with the follow, the follow section. But everyone's on the For You but page. Everyone's on For You page. Yep. And so, um, and I think there was some report today that came out that said something like 95% of videos are viewed on the For You page. Wow. And so, so anyways, when you open Facebook, right, like just think of yourself as a person. Like, why do you open Facebook? Do you open Facebook to go look at a billboard or <laughs> do you open Facebook to go get entertained, yeah. right? And so as long as you're entertaining, I mean, a TikTok, like we had another client, a liquor brand that we worked with and they were getting, you know, probably around a 1.3% click-through rate and their baseline was like 1%. And I was like, guys, we can at least get like three and a half. And so we just tried a bunch of stuff. One of them was, was TikTok. And so we just had, you know, a few people create some TikTok videos. We ran it. All of a sudden, five and a half percent click-through rate. Now 5% became the baseline there. And it's all just because, you know, somebody opened the app. And like, what does well on Facebook? Videos that are entertaining. That's all really Facebook is. And like posts from friends or relatable stories. So as long as your thing is either a good story or it's some kind of video that like feels like it's entertaining um, or is entertaining, um, that's how you're gonna win. You just have to be native to the platform that you're in. Man, I gotta say, this is one of the value bombiest podcasts I've, I've ever recorded. <laughs> so I wanna thank you so much for coming on today. If people wanna get in touch with you, uh, I imagine Twitter would be the way to go. How do you, how do you recommend? Yeah, Twitter is the easiest. Um, just at Mr. Sharma on Twitter, M-R-S-H-A-R-M-A. -R -R um, and then the other easiest way is if, if you, if you cold email me, there's a good chance I'll respond if it's a good, if it's a really good, I'm a cold email nerd. So if it's a good cold email, I love cold emails. yeah, if it's a good cold email, I'll respond instantly. If it's a bad cold email, I won't. But if somebody reads my newsletter, if they subscribe to my newsletter, which is just nick.co slash email, and they respond to that, then I try to respond to everybody. Who's your best cold email that you've reached out to? Uh, probably Mark Cuban. I I, there was, I have um, the same one. I did. I, I reached out to Mark Cuban as yeah. well. He got, he got back to me in five minutes. Yeah, he's he's. Uh, every time I've emailed him, he responds in less than you know five minutes. Yeah, and um, that's hilarious. And all you have to do, I think, is just make it. We should do a whole episode on cold emailing. But yeah, uh, all you have to do is just make it really easy for them to say yes or no. That's it. Yep. 
Okay, this is a lot of fun. I look forward to future collaborations. I know we're going to be doing some some cross publishing, uh, and so our both of our audiences can look forward to that because I think there's a ton of ways we can collab. Absolutely. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can do that right now at directtoconsumeralloneword.co. I'm Eric Dick, and this has been the D2C Podcast. We'll see you next time.